Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Welcome back to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. My name is Gurleen Kaur, and I'm an internal medicine intern at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I'm so thrilled and honored to continue my journey with the Cardio Nerds this year as the director of the Cardio Nerds Academy internship. The Cardiac Critical Care Series is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions from stellar fellow leads and expert faculty led by series co-chairs Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Tugan, Dr. Curran Desai, and Dr. Yoev Karpinchev. We have discussed the need for training paradigms for this burgeoning field and the approach to the shock team call in the series thus far. Today, we are talking about the hemodynamics of shock with our fellow and faculty experts, Dr. Brian McCauley and Dr. Noshin Riza. This episode is filled with pearls related to invasive hemodynamic assessment using pulmonary artery catheter, as well as how to systematically approach interpretation of SWAN numbers. After listening and learning from this episode, I just can't wait to be back in the CCU. And don't forget that CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Remember to claim free CME credit for this episode, and as always, any relevant speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. If you like what you hear, help others find us by rating and reviewing the show. And now, let's get nerdy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CardioNerds Cardiac Critical Care Series. It's Mark Belkin, back here with Amit Goyal and Dan Andender. Today, we'll be covering how to approach clinical hemodynamics by tracking the pathway of a heart failure patient through three admissions. Leading our journey into the depths of hemodynamics are Dr. Brian McCauley and Dr. Noshin Riza. Brian has an interesting backstory as he was a cath lab tech at Penn before going to medical school at Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. So we know hemodynamics is in his blood, no pun intended. He completed his residency training at Brown University, a general cardiology fellowship at Penn. He's now continuing on as an interventional and critical care fellow at Penn. He and the team at Penn did a wonderful job on their episode covering paraparty and cardiomyopathy. We're excited to have him back. Welcome back, Brian. I'm already back in career with you guys. Well, Brian, it's so great to have you back. And remember the incredible human dynamics teaching you gave to us in the original Penn CNCR. So I am so excited for more. And for everyone, it is such an honor to welcome back Dr. Nushin Riza. Dr. Riza is an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure attending at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. She completed residency at Massachusetts General Hospital and both her general and advanced heart failure fellowships at Penn. In addition to her advanced heart failure expertise, she has a special interest in genetic cardiomyopathies. She's well known to the cardiology community for her research and leadership roles, and she's been such an incredible supporter and mentor to CardioNerds, earning her the Master CardioNerd Award earlier this year. We feel so incredibly lucky to have her here for this episode. Dr. Risa, welcome. Thanks so much, Amit, Dan, Mark, Brian, and the rest of the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series team. I'm the lucky one here, humbled to be in the Cardio Nerds orbit and to contribute to this episode. So since uh, we're going to be talking a lot about right heart catheter respect, I thought it would be kind of appropriate for us to cover a little bit about how the Swan-Gantz catheter kind of came around. Uh, a little history always makes things a little more interesting. 
Initially, it was kind of thought to be taboo to advance catheters into the heart, often leading to the death of the animal that was being studied and very few times done in human beings. In the 1970s, two doctors, William Gantz and H.J.C. Swan, decided after looking at a sailboat in San Diego Bay that if they put a sail on a catheter, they could then follow the current through the heart atraumatically and then acquire numbers and sample oxygen as they go through. Uh, however, for many of us on our train, we grew up in the post-escape era where there was a de-emphasis in the utilization of Swan Gantz catheters. To remind our audience, the ESCAPE trial randomized patients with acute decompensated heart failure treatment guided by pulmonary artery catheter replacement versus without. There were no real significant differences in the outcomes and increased IC shocks infection in the PA catheter in the arm. As we start this discussion, I think it's important to note that the ESCAPE trial excluded patients in cardiogenic shock. It was one of the key features, I think, that this differentiates the population that we deal with every day. While just about all the cardiologists that I know agree that stable decompensated heart failure patients responding to diuresis do not need a PA catheter, its use in cardiogenic shock has been shown to be helpful in numerous observational, retrospective, and anecdotal data. Dr. Raisin, how do you incorporate lessons from the escape trial into your practice? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. So my major takeaway is essentially the primary conclusion of the trial, that there is no indication for routine use of pulmonary artery catheters to adjust therapy during hospitalization for patients with a decompensation of chronic heart failure. So when I round on our heart failure services and I'm thinking about the utility of a pulmonary artery catheter for any individual patient, one of the things I might do is to try to think about the patient in front of me in terms of the baseline characteristics of the patients that were in the trial. So for example, systolic blood pressure of low 100s, patients in the trial had a normal serum sodium, mildly elevated BUN around 34, 35, and a creatinine of 1.5. So if my patient I'm rounding on matches, then I'm sort of thinking about what the outcome of the trial was. I think it's important to remember that in the ESCAPE trial, the investigators intentionally did not provide a precise management strategy in response to the hemodynamic information obtained, and we saw considerable variation between sites and use of various medications. I always emphasize to my learners that a PA catheter is a diagnostic tool, not a therapeutic one, and that there is a lot of variation in management that happens after the PA catheter is in place. And of course, this variation needs to be further studied. I also think that the ESCAPE trial and its sub-studies remind us that we must have humility in the treatment of heart failure. The ESCAPE trial's patient population was actually the most compromised patient population to be studied in an NHLBI heart failure trial with medical therapy up to that time. The baseline peak VO2 of this cohort was around 10, and 19% of the patients in the trial were dead at six months. We also must have humility in our ability to diagnose decompensated or acute heart failure. I actually think that my favorite ESCAPE substudy is one called The Value of the Clinician Assessment of Hemodynamics in Advanced Heart Failure, and this was published in Circulation Heart Failure in 2008. You all probably remember that the chosen sites for this NHLBI-funded trial were selected for known expertise in invasive monitoring and in clinical management of patients with heart failure. So in this specific substudy, history and physical examination estimates of filling pressures and cardiac index were compared with invasive measurements on right heart cath. And what'd they find? So they found that the discrimination of history and physical examination estimates for an elevated right atrial pressure of 12 and over only had an AUC of 0.74. And this discrimination was actually worse when the clinicians were trying to estimate if a patient had a wedge pressure of over 22. This actually had an AUC of only 0.63. So when trying to evaluate which HMP elements were associated with an elevated wedge pressure, the only component that was helpful in figuring this out was if a patient had a JVP that was greater than 12. They looked at orthopnea also to see if that was a marker for increased wedge pressure, but that was only significant when they assessed for a wedge of over 30 millimeters of mercury. 
So, of course, you might be wondering about what are the other typical components of a heart failure review systems? How did things like asking about gastrointestinal distress or fatigue or dyspnea or exam signs like rails, ascites, edema, and hepatomegaly, how did they perform? Well, these actually in this study were not sensitive for accurately classifying an elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. In addition to all of that, there was actually not even a strong relationship between what the investigators estimated the cardiac index to be and actually the measured cardiac index when they used a threshold of 2.3. But the hemodynamic and congestion profile classification system, which you all are aware of and created by Lynn Warner-Stevenson and colleagues, classifies patients as poorly perfused or cold or warm or well-perfused. Using this congestion profile had utility in stratifying patients based on their true cardiac index in the study. So I show these data from this study to our fellows in our heart failure boot camp series every year. And I emphasize the practice of JVP assessment and the importance of examining every patient, assessing the hemodynamic profile, and incorporating the feedback from their eventual invasive hemodynamic assessments to better inform their physical exams. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Riza. As you and Brian alluded to, the PA catheter provides a ton of useful information and adds tremendous value when using it in the right situations. I encourage every Cardi nerd out there to go out and check out www.cardinerd.com forward slash right heart catheterization, one word, to see the amazing infographic sculpted by the talented Dr. Ahmed Ghanim for your reference. Mark, it might be useful to review the indications. When should we reach out for that old Swan Gans catheter and gain a lot of insight into our patients? What would you say? Exactly. The common question is then based on what we know from trials, specifically escape and others, is what are the indications to use a BPA catheter? So there's a class of indication to use a PA catheter for patients with respiratory distress or impaired systemic perfusion when clinical assessment is inadequate. But there's also class 2A indications in the following five situations. One, uncertain fluid and perfusion status or uncertain systemic or pulmonary vascular resistances. Two, a systolic blood pressure that remains low despite initial therapy. Three, worsening renal function despite therapy. Four, requirement of intravenous vasoactive agents. Or five, patients who may need consideration for mechanical circulatory support or cardiac transplantation. Of course, other times that it can be used would be things like assessment of pulmonary hypertension or shunts, evaluation of mechanical complications of myocardial infarction, patients with MCS devices with persistent symptoms to evaluate for worsening LV failure, RV failure, or device malfunction, or lastly, assessment of pH and its reversibility prior to possible heart transplantation or durable LVAC. Hey, Mark, thanks for going over that. And, you know, I've really grown to appreciate all of the potential uses of a PA catheter. And whenever possible, I suggest all cardiners to first go and do a thorough bedside clinical evaluation before floating that swan and guessing what the hemodynamics will be. As Dr. Elon Whitstein from Johns Hopkins would tell the residents, we should float our imaginary swan first. And then we can see how we did with a real swan and use the differences to recalibrate our bedside exam for the next patient. But while the PA catheter, a.k.a. the right heart catheter, a.k.a. the Swan-Gans catheter, is invaluable in specific situations, nothing we do is without risk, and we of course shouldn't be throwing them in willy-nilly. Just the other day, we had a patient in shock who probably would have benefited from a Swan-Gans catheter but had an RVOT thrombus, for example. Mark, when should we think twice before inserting a right heart cath? That's a great question, Amit. It's important to use for this diagnostic tool to understand both its benefits but also its risks. So some absolute contraindications are patients with right-sided endocarditis or right-sided masses or thrombus, like the patient you just mentioned. Relative contraindications would include things like severe coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia, similar to a lot of other invasive procedures. Additionally, caution should be taken in patients with severe tricuspid regurgitation or known left bundle branch block. Finally, I think it's important to note that careful maintenance of the PA catheter, if left in after the initial rate heart catheterization, is paramount to limiting its risks. 
This includes, but is not limited to things like daily chest x-rays to confirm the position, as there can be risk if the tip is too deep or pulled back into the RB, for instance. Understanding waveforms so that you can actually sense a change of position sooner when you see the patient on telemetry in the workroom or at the bedside. And then, of course, careful central line care as usual. Dr. Riza, do you have anything else to add to the appropriate use of pulmonary artery catheters? Thanks, Mark. You and Brian pretty much covered it all. The one thing that I usually also do is bundle a framework for pulmonary artery catheter complications when I'm also talking about indications and contraindications. And I generally think that the complications can be bundled into four major groups. Number one, complications related to central venous access, like arterial puncture, air embolism, pneumothorax, or hematoma. Number two, complications related to the cardiac catheterization procedure itself, like arrhythmia, heart block, pulmonary artery rupture. Number three, complications related to prolonged catheter residence, as you were just reviewing, Mark, like venous thrombosis, pulmonary infarction, or infection. And number four, like complications related to the presence of the catheter in the RVOT, like new right bundle branch block or complete heart block in patients with a pre-existing left bundle branch block, as Mark said. That's an amazing overview from everybody. One thing I will say that I've added now as an interventional fellow to my armamentarium is exactly what everybody has advocated for, which is when I have a first year with me, we assess the patient at the bedside prior to doing the right heart cath. We do the right heart cath as a discovery tool to hone our physical exam and then review the numbers and the waveforms afterwards. At Penn, given that we're a quadrary referral center with a robust heart transplant division, we use Swan-Gantz catheters frequently to guide the care of our patients. This is very similar to many of the places all the cardio nerds hail from. Let's meet our patient, Mr. Gavin Swanson. We're going to review Mr. Swanson's right heart cath numbers over the course of three separate admissions spanning the course of two years. Mr. Swanson came to us as a referral from our colleagues in the facility for further workup and management. He is a 44-year-old gentleman with a history of non-escape myopathy and EF of 24%. He has ventricular tachycardia, which was complicated by VT storm, status post-VT ablation, and with an ICD in place. He has atrial fibrillation, status post-pulmonary vein isolation, and hypothyroidism. He's been well-managed by an outside cardiologist, but despite being on maximally tolerated GDMP, Mr. Swanson demonstrated declining trajectory over the past six months. Hence, he was referred to our Center for Advanced Therapies Evaluation. In addition to his non-basal studies, such as an echocardiogram, a right heart catheterization was ordered. His echo showed a reduced ejection fraction and enlarged LV with a normal right ventricle. He has known mitral and tricuspid regurgitation. Dr. Rizzo, what is the role for obtaining invasive hemodynamics in this context? Well, first, the genetic cardiologist in me just needs to take a minute and say that this patient sounds like someone who may have an arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy and specifically left-dominant or ALVC. His demographics and clinical course thus far make me think of the genetic causes of ALVC, and I wonder if he might have a disease-causing genetic variant in lamin, desmoplakin, filament C, desmin, or phospholamban. But back to your original question. We use right heart catheterization to officially characterize hemodynamics, evaluate potential barriers to advanced therapies, and to elucidate a pathway forward for optimizing medical therapy. Often during these evaluations, we find individuals who are on the edge of hemodynamic stability, and the right heart cath helps us further define those phenotypes of isolated LV, isolated RV, or biventricular dysfunction, and identify those in need of intervention such as inotropes, aggressive diuresis, or early mechanical support. Okay, sounds like invasive hemodynamics will help us advance Mr. Swanson's care. Before we go through it all, cardio nerds, be forewarned, and there's a lot of information here. If you can't catch it all, definitely feel free to rewind and re-listen. We'll also include all the numbers in this episode show notes. We encourage you to pause and try interpreting the hemodynamic picture on your own before proceeding. Okay, Brian, looks like Armin already got the right heart catheter. Can you go over the numbers? It's my pleasure to. Let's walk through Mr. Swanson's right heart cath tracings together, and we'll walk through how we interpret each tracing itself. 
So when we look at my heart tracings, there's a couple things to kind of look at. First off, we want to look to see what our scale is. In these tracings, you'll see specifically that it's a 50 scale. You'll also see that the electrocardiogram is of good quality and the tracings themselves are of good quality. In other words, there's no disruption in the live waveforms. The lines are not abrupt. They're wavy and have a kind of like small waves on an ocean appearance. So looking at his tracings, the three events that we kind of look at in the right atrial tracing are his A wave, his V wave, and the mean pressure. So the A wave is the first positive deflection after the P wave in the electrocardiogram. So drawing a line straight down, you'll see that our A wave is approximately six. Sometimes in some individuals, you can actually see a C wave, which is what splits the X, the fat into the X1 and X2 portions. The C wave in this case is not really visible and therefore is estimated at approximately five. And then the V wave, which occurs in most people around the T wave, in this case is around eight, which jives with what we've seen with his echo. He has mild to moderate TR. And so you'd expect to see a bit of a V wave that was more prominent than the A wave that we saw to begin with. Moving on to his ventricular tracing, we now see similar electrocardiogram, similar range of 50 scale and rectilinear waveforms. In other words, waveforms that look like rectangles. There's a very low diastolic number, a high systolic number, and then we look for the, the end diastolic numbers. So the three things we're kind of looking at here are the systolic, the diastolic, and the end diastolic. The diastolic is the very lowest portion of the tracing. The systolic is the highest portion of the tracing. The diastole feeds that systole, so you should look at the diastole preceding the systole. And the end diastolic pressure is straight down from the R wave, and that's how you determine that. The end diastolic pressure and the mean pressure of the right atrium, without any kind of stenosis, should be equal to each other. Moving forward, we move into the pulmonary artery, and in the pulmonary artery, you'll see a absence of a very low diastole, and what you'll see is more of what looks like an aortic waveform, or a typical aortic waveform that you used to see, where you have a systolic, a diastolic, a diacrotic knot. When you look at his tracing in particular, you'll see that there is a systolic pressure, a diastolic pressure that is systolic pressure that is 35, a diastolic pressure is 13, and the mean is arithmetic. In other words, two times your diastolic pressure plus one time your systolic pressure divided by three, in this case, 21. Lastly, we'll look at the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. If this looks very similar to the right atrial pressure that you're seeing before, you would be correct. You're looking at an atrial pressure tracing, in other words, small waves kind of on notion, not rectilinear, not triangular like the PA waveforms. And in this case, what we're seeing here, or the things that we're considering about here, are the A wave, the V wave, and the mean. So again, after the P wave, we'll notice that there is the first positive deflection, which in this case is the A wave at 13. And then we'll notice the X descent, which is, I would say, kind of truncated. And so the wedge tracing has, you know, midway between that 13, I would say, and 11 would be 12 and that would be our mean pressure. And then the V wave here is to 17. So the V wave is much higher than the A wave. We also take into account our aortic pressures at the time, which, you know, our AR pressure is 140, 14 over 66 with a mean of 82. Other things that we need to kind of do our calculations are the hemoglobin, which was 13.6, his PA fat, which is 72.4, and his AO saturation, which we had as a surrogate through his pulse oximeter at 96%. When we placed all of these items together, we came up with a thick cardiac output of 6 liters per minute, a cardiac index of 2.9 liters per minute, a systemic vascular resistance of uh, 1,026 dynes per second per centimeter to the fifth, a pulmonary vascular resistance of 1.5 units, a cardiac power output of 1.1 watts, and a pulmonary arterial pulsatility index of 4.4. So that is a lot of information in a short period of time. We're going to step back for a second here and kind of think about this more globally. So when I look at this, and when I look at all hemodynamics for right heart cath, I think about what's the preload, what's the afterload, and what's the cardiac output. Later down the line, I kind of split hairs a bit and say, how's my RV doing and how's my LV doing? 
So when I look at these numbers, I see that as far as filling pressures are concerned, he has elevated left-sided filling pressures with normal right-side filling pressures. He has systemic vascular resistance that is in the normal spectrum and pulmonary vascular resistance that is in the normal spectrum. And his cardiac output is adequate, as is his cardiac index. When I think about, you know, his cardiac power, which is a, a measurement of left side function, I look at 1.1 watts as being dysfunctional or impaired, and a pulmonary pulsatility index, which is a measurement of RV function, at 4.4 as being functional. So this mirrors, I think, what we saw in his echo, that we have an LV that is stretched to the end and is poorly functional, and that we have an RV that is well-functional. And overall, he is in a balanced state. Brian, wow, what a masterful overview of this patient's hemodynamics and just a pristine way to approach what is a really complicated diagnostic test. And, you know, while we all enjoy the undulating pressure waves and how they change as we pass from one chamber to the next, ultimately, we have to pick specific numbers to record for the right heart cath report. And, you know, I think your right heart cath gave us a lot of information for this patient. But like any other diagnostic test, if it's bad data in, it's going to be bad data out. So, Dr. Riza, what are some best practices for us to consider in how to measure the actual pressure waveform so that we can arrive to the conclusions that Brian just led us through? Yeah, I mean, I often say the exact same thing to the fellows around with me. I often say that the data will be wrong if the preparation isn't right. So zeroing and leveling of the catheter are prerequisites to obtaining accurate measurements, and both are susceptible to error. The atmospheric pressure should be the zero reference point. Now, the correct position for the level of the transducer in supine patients is what's called the phlebostatic axis, which is about five centimeters below the sternal angle. Positioning the tip of the pulmonary artery catheter and measurement of pressure should happen in west zone three of the lung. Just to remind you, that's where the alveolar pressure is lower than both the arterial and venous pulmonary pressures. And this is a prerequisite for having the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure accurately reflect the left atrial pressure. As Brian so expertly reviewed, the CVP, pulmonary artery pressure, and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure should be measured at the end of expiration. At this point, this is where the pleural pressure is closest to atmospheric pressure, and therefore the influence of pleural pressure on the measurements is really minimal. At end expiration in the spontaneously breathing patient, the pressure is measured near the maximum or sort of peak value of the waveform. And by contrast, pressure is measured at the minimum value or sort of nadir of the waveform in the mechanically ventilated patient to account for the impact of positive pleural pressure. We also try to limit conscious sedation in supine patients to minimize the effect and the hemodynamic effect really of these drugs and their effects on the cardiopulmonary system. Now, don't be afraid to confirm your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure measurements using fluoroscopy in the lab, waveform analysis as Brian walked us through, and even checking the pulmonary capillary wedge saturation to make sure you have correct data. CVP and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, if you're using it as a surrogate for the left atrial pressure, should be done by taking the mean of at least three or more consecutive beats, and as Brian said, at the mid-A wave. And we also need to be aware of waveform pitfalls and artifacts like catheter whip, damping, overwedging, and underwedging, and strategies to address each one of these. We also need to be aware of the situations in which the wedge pressure may actually not approximate LVEDP, if that's what you're going for. And this can happen in situations like pulmonary venoocclusive disease, mitral stenosis, or VSD, as a few examples. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Riza. Bad data can be worse than no data, and these are great tips to help us. Next, can you walk us through your systematic way for interpreting right heart cath numbers, and how would you interpret heart patient's numbers? Sure. And I have to say, this is why I love rounding with Brian in the CCU, because he can walk you through it just as good as I can. But the first thing that I say to residents in our CCU is when we start reviewing hemodynamics on rounds, is that we have to know what is measured and what is derived. I like to start by looking at what is measured first. 
And so as Brian reviewed, that would be our biventricular filling pressures, the RA and the wedge pressure. I compare those to the normal values in my head. And then I sort of figure out what I'm expecting to see on this patient's physiology based on what I already know about the patient. And then I see if those two things match. I'll then move to the PA pressures and the systemic pressures in the map and repeat the same process. Compare those to normal values, then to what I'm expecting to see about this patient's physiology and do the same. Then I'll move to the PA sat, the hemoglobin, the AO saturations, do the same process. And then I'll start to formulate what I should expect to see for the calculated values like cardiac output and index, SVR, PVR, and the other measures of biventricular function that we reviewed like cardiac power and PAPI. Going through hemodynamics in a systematic way and anticipating each measurement and calculation is invaluable to forming your own management plan and to catch any incongruencies. I always look at the waveforms myself, and it's great when I have a fellow on rounds like Brian who does that with me, and to make sure that I agree with the measurements that were recorded in the lab and to make sure those potential pitfalls that we addressed earlier don't compromise our data. So just as Brian said, I would interpret this patient as having normal biventricular filling pressures, a preserved cardiac output and index, but evidence of LV systolic dysfunction and limited cardiac reserve. He's normotensive, not hypoxic, and has a normal hemoglobin. And he does catch my attention for having a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 21 millimeters of mercury and a PVR of 1.5 with a wedge of less than 15. The latest World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension proposed lowering the threshold of diagnosis of pH to a mean pulmonary artery pressure of more than 20. So this is actually something to watch over time in this young patient. Dr. Reeds, I love the idea of understanding measured versus derived values from our red heart cath interpretation, and then also how you always fact check and look at the waveforms yourself. I think that modeling that for all your trainees is just a fantastic thing to do and uh, inspiration for me. Okay, so we have a patient with pretty normal filling pressures here, but what about ventricular function? Dr. Reza, what are the methods in our toolbox that we can use to determine cardiac output assessment? And does the data will be wrong if the preparation is not right apply here as well? Absolutely, Dan. So there are, I think, a few major ways that we've probably all learned to assess cardiac output. And in general, cardiac output is most accurately measured by the direct FIC method, where the VO2 or oxygen consumption is directly measured and divided by the difference in the arterial and mixed venous oxygen content or the AVO2 difference. But in practice, I would say that a majority of right heart cath labs don't have the ability to directly measure VO2 at the time of right heart cath for every patient. And so henceforth, we have a couple of other options. So if the VO2 cannot directly be measured, Thermodilution is preferred because of inaccuracies in estimating indirect VO2 or sort of making an estimation for what goes in that numerator of the cardiac output calculation. So to measure cardiac output using thermodilution, a bolus of cold crystalloid solution is injected into the proximal or central venous circulation port of the PA catheter. The cold indicator bolus injection causes a decrease in the blood temperature, and that temperature difference is detected downstream using what's called a thermistor near the catheter tip. From there, you can calculate a thermodilution curve, which represents the changes in blood temperature over time, and therefore you can calculate the cardiac output. Although thermodilution is perceived to be inaccurate in cases of low output or tricuspid regurgitation, there actually are more recent data to suggest that reasonable thermodilution cardiac output measurements can be obtained in these settings. But overall, I think for learners, it is important to become well-versed in the standard of cardiac output assessment at your particular institution know if you predominantly use thermodilution, indirect FIC or direct FIC in your cath labs or your cardiac ICUs and in your cardiac surgery ICUs. And of course, know the limitations for each assessment method. Dr. Reza, thank you for that overview. It is very important to know how and what method of cardiac output determination you're actually using. Very often for pulmonary hypertension patients in the cath lab, we'll use both a FIC and a thermodilution and compare the two. 
Uh, measurement of the cardiac output by FIC and thermoelectric methods seems to be pretty standard. How often do you use alternative hematic metrics of left ventricular function, such as CPO or LV stroke work index? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. So I usually use cardiac power output, LV stroke work index, and its companion RV stroke work index more when I'm thinking ahead to potential interventions and prognosis. CPO has been more specifically linked with the risk of in-hospital mortality in cardiogenic shock and is now increasingly being used to track efficacy of treatments for cardiogenic shock. So I think we'll learn more and more about its utility. Values of cardiac power output of less than 0.6 watts at the time of presentation have been associated with significantly worse outcomes in acute myocardial infarction shock despite appropriate treatment. So that's one sort of threshold to use going forward. Yeah, it's really helpful to be able to use the hemodynamic information to help zero in on you know which side, the left or the right, is failing and to help guide further MCS and interventions down the road. I recently learned about the novel hemodynamic metric, aortic pulsatility index or the API. And the study in which this was derived was recently published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure Special Issue on the Nexus of Heart Failure and Cardiac Critical Care. And a big shout out, the lead author happens to be our series co-chair, Dr. Mark Belkin. Mark, first off, congratulations on this incredible work. Super excited to learn more about this. And as the expert in this area, can you briefly explain what it is and how we should use it? Yes, thanks, Alan, for shouting this out. And of course, I want to first thank Dr. Jonathan Gregstein, who is my main mentor in this project, as well as the rest of the UChicago Heart Failure team and beyond. So ABBE is calculated as uh, systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure as the numerator, and then divided by the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So you can think of this as kind of LV contractility divided by filling pressure. This is pretty intuitive to how we think about heart failure and cardiogenic shock. We know that patients with narrow pulse pressures and evidence of congestion are sicker, and this is an objective way to measure that. Briefly, what we publish in the journal for cardiac failure is a retrospective cohort of patients with acute decompensated heart failure who required melanin in our cath lab at the University of Chicago. We found that patients with an APD less than 1.45 were more likely to have the outcome of death or need for elevator heart transplant at 30 days compared to an APD greater than 1.45. We also looked at APD in the escape population, which was published this past year in ESC heart failure. The escape population is, of course, less sick as cardiogenic shock patients were mostly excluded. In this study, we found that an APTE less than 2.9 was associated with death, heart transplant, or LVAD at six months compared with greater than 2.9. Interestingly, APTE was actually the only measure of left ventricular function associated with outcomes, as ours and actually some prior analyses had shown that thick cardiac index and CPO were not associated with these same hard clinical outcomes. Of note, the APTE for our patient here would be 3.7. Dr. Riza, I've been thinking about APTE for months now, and it's been a personally fulfilling journey from a research perspective. I would love your thoughts on its practical value. Huge congratulations to you and your team, Mark. I definitely agree that you've achieved your goal of deriving a novel hemodynamic index that incorporates LV output and filling pressure and is simple to remember and to calculate. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing your future work, I'm sure, and seeing potentially future prospective studies using the API to assess the need for advanced therapies. Awesome. Thank you so much for your kind words. And yes, we're looking forward to doing more studies and prospective stuff. So keep an eye out for it. And thank you. Congrats to you and all your uh, co-authors. It's like super exciting. So it sounds like the API is the left ventricular surrogate for the PAPI, which is a great segue to the assessment of the right ventricular function. Dr. Riza, how do you assess the right ventricular function using right heart cath data? Yeah, so I think Brian mentioned a couple of these earlier in our first set of hemos. Now we've seen that there are a few newer derived parameters that can serve as indices of RV function. And those include RV stroke work, RV stroke work index, and the CVP to wedge ratio. So one that's easiest to calculate is the CVP to wedge ratio. And under normal conditions, the CVP is significantly less than the wedge pressure. 
Under conditions sort of like our patient, we're looking at the CVP to wedge ratio and trying to see if it's approaching this threshold of 0.8 to 0.9 or greater. So we've known from studies looking at patients with impaired RV function that a CVP to wedge ratio of greater than 0.86 is suggestive of impaired RV function. Now, the PAPI, or the Pulmonary Artery Pulsatility Index, has demonstrated utility in evaluating the degree of RV dysfunction. As we may have mentioned earlier, a PAPI of less than 0.9 indicates significantly impaired RV function and has, again, been associated with the need for RV support. I think these parameters can help us tailor therapies based on the cardiogenic shock phenotype we're seeing and perhaps choose therapies that hemodynamically rescue patients more quickly and potentially prevent further sequelae of shock. Although, of course, we definitely need to study that further. This has to be one of the best overviews and approach to right heart cath and invasive hemodynamics that I remember hearing. And I know that I'm going to be listening to this numerous times to extract all the gold here. It's so important to properly be able to evaluate this information because oftentimes there's a lot at stake, right? We're making complex decisions about potentially toxic vasoactive infusions, MCS, advanced therapies, and goals of care discussions. So we have to get this right. And this has just been incredible. Stepping back to summarize his first right heart cath, Mr. Swanson demonstrated a stable but sick heart with LV predominant dysfunction, but adequately compensated at that time. But Brian, I have a feeling we're not done yet. That's right, Alvin. Several months later, we received a shock call from an outside hospital. For our we discussed the importance of the shock team in episode two of the series with Dr. Anu Lala, so be sure to listen in if you missed it. During this particular call, Mr. Swanson presented to a different hospital with several days of fevers, chills, nausea, anorexia, and dysuria. He was hypotensive with a blood pressure of 84 over 46 and a mean pressure of 58. His heart rate was 92 beats per minute. Respiratory rate was 22. He had a temperature of 102 Fahrenheit and his stat was 95% on room air. His initial lab workup showed a leukocytosis 15 with a bandemia, an AKI with a creatinine of 1.4 with his baseline being 0.9, hypochloremia to 90, and an anion gap of 19 with an elevated lactate of 3.5. His urinalysis showed pyuria with more than 10 white blood cells per high power field, a positive leukocyte esterase, positive nitrates, and moderate bacteria. Both urine and blood cultures grew gram-negative rods. Given his underlying heart condition, the referring hospital preferred transfer is care to Penn. Thanks, Ryan. Just listening to the story, it sounds like we're dealing with septic shock from a urinary source superimposed upon his weakened heart. Managing this patient might prove difficult. Mark, that's a great point. Getting a Schwann-Gantz catheter in this patient to estimate his volume status, evaluate his cardiac output, and differentiate the type of shock we were dealing with was the top of our two years when he arrived from the CCU. Upon arrival, his right heart cath showed an RA of 3, an RB of 30 over 2 with an RBEDP of 3, a pulmonary pressure of 30 over 11 with a mean of 17, a wedge of 7. His systolic blood pressure was 84 over 46 with a mean of 58. His hemoglobin was 15.1. His PA sat was 84. His AO sat was 95. Cardiac output was calculated to be a thick at 11.5, and his cardiac index was calculated to be 5.5. His FCR was 382 dynes per second per centimeter to the fifth, and his PVR was 0.9 wood unit. His CPO was 1.5. His API was 4.75, his PAPI was 3.8, and his RA to wedge was 0.5. Dr. Riza, how do you interpret these numbers in the setting of these patients' known heart failure and the new UTI with bacteremia? These are very different hemodynamics than we saw from him previously. So here, going through our measured hemodynamics, we see low biventricular filling pressures, high pulmonary artery saturation in a hypotensive patient, a higher hemoglobin than we saw before from him, possibly reflecting an element of hemoconcentration, and evidence of impaired systemic oxygen extraction ability. 
Our calculated values are showing us a hyperdynamic cardiac output and index with very low systemic vascular resistance. This is all consistent with the vasodilatory or distributive shock state. Thanks, Dr. Riza, for that interpretation. How would you use these hemodynamics to guide your management? And also, would you leak the PA catheter in place until the patient stabilized or consider removing it after the initial hemodynamic assessment? Yeah, Mark, this is a really valuable set of information from these opening hemodynamics because you now know that the predominant issue here is a vasodilatory or distributive shock state, and therefore you can target your therapies such as judicious fluid resuscitation, vasopressor support, while you treat the infection and achieve source control. Now, I bet if you'd asked 10 different heart failure clinicians, you would get 10 different answers about what to do with the PA catheter, but I'll just give you my opinion here. In this case, given his bacteremia and again the unusual presentation of a severe urinary infection like this in a young man, my concern is that we might have to address a source in the genitourinary system. So I would remove the PA catheter and use other clinical markers of organ perfusion to guide my treatment. There's of course always a possibility that his shock state could transition to a mixed state or more of a cardiogenic shock picture, but we can expectantly manage this if we are appropriately anticipating this potential issue. So it sounds like the take-home lessons from Mr. Swanson's second admission is that the PA catheter can be leveraged to first differentiate the type of shock, guide appropriate interventions, and monitor for any hemodynamic changes as the patient improves, particularly in those with a low cardiovascular reserve such as this one. But Brian, you told us we'd get the opportunity to learn from three sets of FEMOs. Don't leave us hanging, man. Well, it's not this point. Approximately 10 months later, Mr. Swanson presented to the outpatient office routine follow-up. After being evaluated by his heart failure attending, he was sent directly to the ED for admission and obtained a right heart catheterization on his way to the CCU. His right heart catheterization during this admission is significantly changed from his prior one. So his RA here, his mean RA pressure was 23. His RV was 70 over 22 with an RVEP of 23. His PA pressure was 70 over 38 with a mean of 49. His wedge pressure was 41 with V waves to 54. His AO pressure was 108 over 71 with a mean of 85. His hemoglobin was 11.5. His PA sat was 26 and his AO sat was 99. His calculated fix was cardiac output was 2.3 liters per minute and his calculated fix cardiac index was 1.1. His SVR was 21 dynes per second per centimeter to the fifth. His PVR was 3.9 wood units. His CPO calculated output was 0.43 watts. His API was 0.9, his PAPI was 1.4, and his RA to wedge ratio was 0.61. Hey, this is a very different hemodynamic profile. It's a good thing the clinic sent him for admission. Dr. Riza, can you please walk us through how would you interpret these numbers? Sure, and this is a great cast by the clinic attending. So again, our measured values demonstrate significantly elevated biventricular filling pressures, severely elevated pulmonary artery systolic pressure, and along with that, an elevated mean PA pressure and severely decreased pulmonary artery saturation. He's not frankly hypotensive, and his proportional pulse pressure is actually higher than I would expect it to be, but he's newly anemic now and not hypoxic. Now, our calculated values demonstrate a severely depressed cardiac output and index, severely elevated systemic vascular resistance, and an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance as well. And the ancillary parameters that we discussed earlier, like cardiac power output, API, PAPI, and CVP to wedge ratio, are really telling us that this is an LV predominant problem. So overall, this person is in severe cardiogenic shock with elevated biventricular filling pressures and evidence of pulmonary hypertension, and we have multiple therapeutic pathways to target here. Thanks so much for that, Dr. Riza. In addition to the numbers, a ton of information can be gleaned from evaluating the tracings themselves. As we talked about earlier, you should always evaluate the tracings you have in front of you. So we do not want to be hypocritical here. So definitely, cardio nerds, check out these tracings in the show notes. And if you look carefully at the pulmonary arterial tracing, 
you might notice a beat-to-beat variability within the waveforms. And this is actually mirrored in his arterial line. This is a finding of pulses alternance caused by increased resistance to left ventricular ejection due to an elevated SVR. So taking it all together, this patient would be in a sky stage C or classic cardiogenic shock. And a reminder for everyone that we went into the sky stages as well as other classifications for shock with Dr. Anulala in the previous episode of the series. Dr. Ruiza, how does this right-heart guide your next steps in approaching his care? So I'll say first that in addition to the right-heart cath numbers, I would like some additional lab information to help me assess his end organ function. Maybe we can guess that he was mentating okay since he presented to clinic for a routine appointment. But I would like to know his serum sodium, potassium, and his hepatic and renal function to help guide my immediate interventions and to assess his response to therapy. So based on these hemodynamics and assuming that his end organ function is not on a perilous trajectory, we first need to warm him up so then we can dry him out. So I would start with inotropic support with something like milrinone first and an intravenous vasodilator like nitroprusside. With these two interventions, we hope to see an improvement in his cardiac output and index, and hopefully his urine output should pick up. He should start diuresing, and we would augment that with IV diuretics next. He really requires hourly, or you could even say minute-to-minute assessment of his response to these therapies and clinical status because he is in such dire straits. And we have a low threshold to escalate to a higher level of circulatory support if these medical interventions are not adequate. I told you at the beginning that I was also concerned that he had an arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, so I'm going to be closely monitoring him for any increase in arrhythmia burden on inotropes. And if that should happen, we would need to consider a more stable platform like temporary mechanical circulatory support. Thank you very much, Dr. Riza. Exactly as you said, we started on milrinone nitroprusside in the unit. We were able to drop his SVR and increase his cardiac output. At once he was open and warm, we started aggressively diuresing him, successfully so. However, approximately two days into our aggressive therapeutics, he developed incessant BT and ended up going to BT storm. Thankfully, we have an excellent shock team here, and we recognized we had kind of reached the end of the medical therapeutics that we had that were available for him. He had already been worked up for transplant, and now it was a matter of choosing the appropriate mechanical surgery support to actually act as a bridge to get him to transplant. After a review of all of his cardiac hemodynamic indices and its current trajectory, the decision was made to place him on the VA ECMO. And in sum, he got a heart about a week later and has been doing quite well. Wow, Brian, it sounds like he was in dire circumstances, but received fantastic and absolutely stellar care with you and your team at Penn. What a great ending to a complex story. He had a complex course, and there was a lot to discuss here about the management of VT and the use of escalating forms of mechanical circulatory support. Luckily, we have some upcoming episodes in the series that will take deep dives into these topics, such as our cardiac critical care episode with Dr. Naveen Kapoor and Vanessa Bloomer, who will discuss isolated left ventricular shock and the use of mechanical circulatory support, and our episode featuring Dr. Sean Dickden, who will discuss the management of VT. Thank you, Dr. Iza, for all of your teaching pearls. This was an amazing review of invasive hemodynamic assessment and interpretation. An understanding of the nuances of hemodynamics is incredibly important. As you said, the data will be wrong if the preparation is not right. Thank you, Brian, for putting together these amazing cases. And finally, thank you, Cardio Nerds, for tuning in to another great installment of the Cardiac Critical Care Series. Can't wait till next time.